Are you tired of living a dull and colorless life? Do you blend into the background of every crowd you're around? Isn't it time for you to bask in some glory of your own? Introducing the Mirror Man costume, the ultimate show-stopping outfit that will leave everyone in awe. This stunning silver performance costume will turn heads and dazzle any audience with its disco ball effect. Be the center of attention at your next event, whether you're on stage or mingling with guests. This brilliant outfit is great in the outdoors and is guaranteed to catch and reflect the rays of early morning sunrises and late afternoon sunsets in stunning ways that will captivate any crowd. Designed for public figures, event agencies, theaters, animators, and individual performers, this costume is perfect for living statues, animation artists, entertainers, and anyone who loves to put on a show. It is especially suited to bowling alleys, bar mitzvahs, and roller skating rinks. And the best part? It's custom designed just for you and can be shipped in just two to three weeks. This versatile costume is perfect for any occasion and it's built to last, so you can use it for years to come. Don't settle for an ordinary outfit. Stand out in any crowd with the Mirror Man costume. Order yours now for the low price of $16.65 plus tax and shipping. Please note that wearing this costume may cause extreme levels of awesomeness. This costume may cause temporary blindness if exposed to direct sunlight or extremely bright lights. The Mirror Man costume is not suitable for people with an aversion to being the center of attention. This costume may cause temporary narcissism or delusions of grandeur. If the ego is inflated for more than four hours, consult a counselor or a psychiatrist. Wearing this costume may cause people to mistake you for a disco ball and attempt to dance with you. Please note that the Mirror Man costume is not suitable for people with a fear of mirrors or reflections, including werewolves and vampires. The Mirror Man costume may cause temporary disorientation as the wearer will constantly see multiple reflections of themselves, not intended as a flotation device. Do not use if you suffer from claustrophobia, hemophilia, or someone near you as a narcissist. Falling down while wearing a suit may result in multiple lacerations. Please allow 24 to 48 hours for removing suit. Mirror suits are manufactured in a plant that processes peanuts and tree nuts. Do not use suit if you're experiencing vomiting or diarrhea. Really, don't. Wearing suit in a funhouse may cause disorientation. Do not use suit in combination with magnifying glasses, especially near anthills. Suit is intended for one occupant at a time. Do not use in combination with lasers. Ask your publicist if the shiny silver suit is right for you. Do not wear mirror suit during a solar eclipse. Blinding may occur. Objects in mirror suit may appear closer than they actually are. Mirror suit may cause spontaneous dance parties. Use with caution. Damage to mirror suit has been known to result in up to seven years of bad luck. Wearing mirror suit while watching horror movies may make jump scares twice as scary. Resist urge to be suspended from the ceiling and spun around. Silver shiny suit has been known to cause instant deification, resulting in severe abdominal pain and death. Directly only. Don't wait. Unleash your superstar today. I will explain. Oh, my goodness. Um, you know, we're, we're studying a passage of Scripture that's really difficult to, to dive into. Um, in fact, I mentioned where we were in Acts, and John Richardson, who... Um, has preached for 36 years, says, you know, that's one of the few passages that I've successfully avoided covering in 36 years. Good luck. Um, but I'm kind of a leadership wonk, and so as I looked at this passage, and we're gonna, we're gonna go verse by verse through it, um, I saw some leadership lessons. And in fact, here at First Free, we have six distinctive values, and the sixth is leadership is learned. Here's how we talk about that distinctive value of leadership is learned here at First Free. We develop leaders who impact the world for Jesus in all walks of life. Everyone can grow to be a better leader. Leadership development is a lifelong process directed by a sovereign God. It happens both continually and episodically, often through challenges, sometimes through training or trying leadership opportunities. And I love that description for a number of reasons. I, I mentioned that I'm a, a leadership wonk. <laughs> I'm, I sometimes do executive coaching. I read books on leadership, and then I listen to audio books on leadership, and then I read journal articles on leadership. 
The other thing I love about that description, though, is that we're talking about a specific kind of leadership. We say leadership is learned, but what we really mean is godly leadership is learned, or healthy leadership is learned, or servant leadership is learned. J. Robert Clinton, who is a professor of theology at Fuller Theological Seminary, um, and I've mentioned him before, I love his stuff, he describes it this way. He says, leadership is a dynamic process in which a man or a woman of God, with God-given capacity, influences a specific group of God's people toward his purposes for that group. And we want that type of leader. We want it in our workplaces. We want that leadership in our government, in our churches, in our families. And I think we want to be that type of leader. After all, you are a man or a woman. You have God-given capacity. And you have a specific group of people that you influence. God has a purpose for the people that you influence. We're all in the process of learning leadership. So most of the time when we learn about leadership, we want to focus on the characteristics and the activities and the behaviors and the heart condition of what great leadership looks like. Today, we're going to do something different. Today, we're going to look at the other side of leadership. We're going to be studying a leader who shows us equally that it's true that terrible leadership is learned, that self-centered leadership is learned, and that destructive leadership is learned. This morning, we'll be looking in depth at the leadership journey and the leadership failings of King Herod Agrippa. He's a Jewish king that we meet in chapter 12 of Acts, and we'll try to see his failings. We'll study his model of leadership as a cautionary tale for the rest of us. Okay, and I'll try to make some sense of the silly video that we started with. I promise. But let's, let's um, open in prayer. God, thank you for your word. As we open your word, I just pray that you would guide us to the truth that you have for us today. Help us to learn and apply the wisdom that's available to us in this passage. Most importantly, God, we pray that all of the glory and all of the praise would be only to you and always for you. Amen. Okay. We are in Acts chapter 12, beginning in verse 19. It's the verse that Nick ended with last week, and it says, Herod Agrippa ordered a thorough search for him. When he couldn't be found, Herod interrogated the guards and and sentenced them to death. Afterward, Herod left Judea to stay in Caesarea for a while. Now, the him that Agrippa is looking for is Peter, the apostle. Earlier in the chapter, and discussed by Nick last week, we learned that Agrippa had ordered the apostle James executed, and then had arrested Peter with the intention of having a big public trial after Passover, likely putting Peter to death as well. But Agrippa's plan was foiled because God miraculously released and rescued Peter from prison. And when the guards couldn't find Peter, The king got angry, ordered their executions, and then he left for Caesarea, which was a town in the north of Judea and the seat of Roman power in Israel. Let's keep reading. On verse 20, it says, 
Now Herod was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. So they sent a delegation to make peace with him because their cities were dependent upon Herod's country for food. The delegates won the support of Blastus, Herod's personal assistant, and an appointment with Herod was granted. When the day arrived, Herod put on his royal robes, sat on his throne, and made a speech to them. The people gave him a great ovation, shouting, it is the voice of a God, not of a man. Now, we don't know why Agrippa was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. We do know that they needed Judea to export food to their cities, and apparently Agrippa had not agreed to do so. So, proving the old adage, it's not what you know, it's who you know, they somehow found favor with Herod's personal assistant, Blastus. Now, maybe it was a bribe, maybe it was some other arrangement, or maybe Blastus was compelled by their need for food and had mercy on them. In any case, the delegates from Tyre and Sidon are given an opportunity to come before the king. And Herod prepares for the meeting by putting on his royal robes, sitting on his throne, and making a speech. And something about the robes, or the throne, or the speech, or maybe their dire need for food, resulted in unwarranted praise for Agrippa. Scripture says the people gave him a great ovation, shouting, it is the voice of God and not of man. Now, as I studied this, I found that because Herod was a king, and he was a king at the time of the Roman occupation and rule over all of Israel, um, there are other historical accounts of these events. And we're going to look and in some depth at another historical account of the same events covered in Acts chapter 12 by a Jewish historian named Josephus. I'm gonna read from his account of Herod Agrippa's last speech, and you'll see that it paints a fuller picture of the scene, and we can learn about the failed leadership of the king. Here's Josephus. Now, when Agrippa had reigned three years over all Judea, he came to the city of Caesarea, which was formerly called Strato's Tower. And there he exhibited shows in honor of Caesar. Upon being informed that there was a certain festival celebrated to make vows for his safety, at which festival a great multitude was gathered together of principal persons and such as were of dignity through his province. This is not easy to read. It's written in, in kind of an older form. It was translated. I think the gist of it is that Herod goes to Caesarea. There are festivals to celebrate Caesar. And at these festivals, different crowds come in, and there are different audiences with the important dignitaries, including uh, Herod Agrippa. Josephus goes on, on the second day of which shows, he put on a garment made wholly of silver and of a contexture truly wonderful and came into the theater early in the morning at which time the silver of his garment being illuminated by the fresh reflection of the sun's rays upon it shone out after a surprising manner and was so resplendent as to spread a horror over those that looked intently upon him. I get that. A garment made entirely of silver, illuminating the sun's rays, so beautiful that it shocked onlookers. Hopefully now you can see the connection between 
Herod Agrippa, and the Mirror Man costume. And honestly, I was delighted as I was preparing to find pictures of the Mirror Man costume when I searched for a picture of a totally silver suit that reflected the sun. And so I want to give you just a little inside baseball on how these things come about. On Tuesday, I met with the service planning team. We meet every Tuesday and make sure that everything is in line for Sunday's message. And on Tuesday, I met with them and I showed them a half a dozen pictures of the Mirror Man costume. And I said, hey, this is what I, I just want to show people kind of what it looks like. And um, this is a little bit silly, but Andrew Miller said, yeah, it's a little bit silly. It feels like you're doing a, a joke, but you're only doing the joke halfway. And Andrew Miller encouraged me to lean into the joke. <laughs> and if you know me, you know it doesn't take very much encouragement for me to lean into the joke. And so I said, well, maybe we could do something. Maybe I could record the voiceover ahead of time. And Eric Phillips, who's on our team and is a brilliant video editor, said, why don't you come over tomorrow and we'll record it. And, and when I got there, he had found some video of the married man costume. And he helped me edit the script. And then we had way too much fun writing the disclaimers. I don't know which ones you caught, but if you caught some of them, I'm sorry. Um, we, we just had a blast. But there's a point to it. Because where scripture says that Agrippa put on his royal robes, Josephus tells us about the amazing impact that a suit made entirely of silver had on the crowd. Here's Josephus again. Presently his flatterers cried out. Don't miss that Josephus identifies them as flatterers. They called one from one place and another from another, though not for his good, that he was a god. And they added, be thou merciful to us, for although we have hitherto reverenced thee only as a man, yet shall we henceforth own thee as superior to mortal nature. Upon this, the king did neither rebuke them nor reject their impious flattery. I love the way that a historian and his account line up with what we learn from Acts. That Herod call to God, doesn't rebuke them, but instead accepts their praise and their claim. What happens next is covered both by Acts and Josephus. Here's Acts. Instantly an angel of the Lord struck Herod with a sickness because he accepted the people's worship instead of giving glory to God. So he was consumed with worms and died. In preparation for the message, I did look into the process of dying from intestinal worms. I decided not to show you that video. <laughs> Josephus tells us that Agrippa looks up and sees an owl sitting on a rope above his head, and he immediately understands that this is a messenger of ill tidings. Now, I don't know if an angel can take the form of an owl, but I do know in any event, that Agrippa recognized that he had offended God by accepting the worship of men instead of giving them glory to God. 
Josephus says, a severe pain arose in his belly and began in a most violent manner. Here are some of Agrippa's last words captured by Josephus. Agrippa says, I whom you call a God am commanded presently to depart this life. Well, providence thus reproves the lying words you just now said to me, and I who was by you called immortal am immediately to be hurried away by death. We started by saying that Herod Agrippa could serve as a cautionary tale, showing us how leaders fail. And I want to explore how he became such a terrible leader. And then we're going to look at just three characteristics of his failed leadership that, that he demonstrated that we should learn to avoid. So how did Agrippa become a terrible leader? Um, we don't know, but we can connect the dots and make some assumptions. Let's start with his grandfather, Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the murderous tyrant that we know from the Christmas story. He's the Herod that the wise men go to, and he tries to trick the wise men to come back and let him know where Jesus is so that he can go and kill this purported future king of the Jews. When that doesn't work, he hatches another plan and orders that all little boys two years of age and younger be executed. A few years before that, Herod the Great executed two of his sons, including Aristobulus, who was Agrippa's father. So Agrippa's mother took Agrippa to Rome to protect him from the threat that he might be the next target of Herod the Great's executions. And so Agrippa grows up in the Roman um, palace under the, the guide and the tutelage of Caesar's Augustus and Tiberius. The leadership that he saw as a child in Judea and in Rome was always dictatorial, brutal, and often deadly. Additionally, Agrippa's uncle, Herod Antipas, or Antipas, was responsible for beheading John the Baptist, and he participated in the trial of Jesus. And so Agrippa, by killing James and killing the guards and planning to kill Peter, was definitely following in the family business. One more historical note that shows us that heredity is not necessarily destiny when it comes to leadership. In a few chapters, we're going to meet Agrippa's son named Agrippa II. He was 17 years old at the time that his father died, and he's depicted in Scripture as a more reasonable leader. We'll meet him in Acts 26 as he listens to Paul's testimony about Paul's conversion. And he thoughtfully considers the claims of Christianity, saying, do you think you can persuade me to become a Christian so quickly? And later saying, if, if Paul hadn't appealed to Caesar, we could release him because he's done nothing wrong. One other thing about Agrippa II, um, one of his close friends was Josephus the historian. And so if, like me, you wonder, okay, where did these historians get their facts? At least in this case, Josephus learned directly from Agrippa's son. Okay, so enough history, enough about Agrippa's background. Let's look at three characteristics that he demonstrates very well that we want to avoid both in ourselves and in the leaders that we choose to follow. 
Agrippa was an inauthentic leader. Agrippa was an angry leader prone to outbursts, and Agrippa was an ego-driven leader. Now, I know that there are lessons in all of these for me, uh, and I'll actually share some personal experiences. Maybe there are lessons in these for you as well. First, Agrippa was an inauthentic leader. If we think about the silver suit that Josephus describes, we get a picture of someone who's putting on a show. The notable thing about the silver suit, or the mirror costume for that matter, is that it makes everyone look at you, but nobody can truly see you. This is the picture of an inauthentic leader. The temptation to look better than you actually are is common for leaders. I remember early in my career, I had just been given a new position, and somebody very close to me, a close friend, um, said, you know that 10-year-old Toyota Tercel that you're driving isn't really in keeping with the position and the title that you have. You should really get a much nicer car so that you can, can look more like the job that you have. And he meant well, and I was tempted. And I thought about it. And at that time, I recognized I experienced that desire to look better than I actually was. Thankfully, I drove that Tercel for another two years until it threw a rod and had to be turned in for junk and scrap in a hotel parking lot. Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. He also warned, beware of the teachers of the religious law for they like to parade around in flowing robes and receive respectful greetings as they walk in the marketplace. Whether you're a leader of a large company or a small family or a project team at school, the message is clear. Be authentic. Don't try to be better. Don't try to appear better than you are. Agrippa apparently convinced the crowds that he was a god. Talk about lacking authenticity. I love the way that Brene Brown says it. She says, if you trade your authenticity for safety, you may experience the following. Anxiety, depression, eating disorders, addiction, rage, blame, resentment, and inexplicable grief. There's a huge cost to being inauthentic. And speaking of rage, Agrippa was an angry leader. The Bible only mentions Agrippa in one chapter in Acts. And in this one chapter, he kills James, 16 guards, he imprisons Peter, and he withholds food from thousands in Tyre and Sidon because he's angry with them. Personally, I learned a lesson about controlling my anger um, 28 years ago. I was a new supervisor, and I was responsible for a group of chemists my friend David was a new supervisor, and he was responsible for the office staff that worked with that group of chemists. And there was a feud between the chemists and the office staff. And I told you that it was a long time ago, so it won't surprise you to know that the feud was about who puts the paper folders in the filing cabinets after they've been used. I remember that both sides had good points, and David and I, being new, enthusiastic leaders, decided that we could solve this by calling a meeting. 
and having his group and my group convene in the conference room for a shared discussion, some reasonable approaches, and a solution that everybody could live with. And so, at the appointed time, David was there and David's group was there. I was there, and nobody from my group came. Five minutes went by, 10 minutes went by. I'm embarrassed, angry, frustrated at this stunt. So at 10 minutes, I walked downstairs to the offices where my group met, and I went up to the first team member that I saw, Vicky, and I said, very calmly, I said so that everybody in all of the desks and cubicles of my group and probably in the neighboring departments could hear, I don't care what you're trying to prove and I don't want to hear any explanation. I just want every one of you upstairs in the conference room right now. This is unacceptable. That's good leadership, right? Vicki looked up and said, do you mean for the meeting that you scheduled for tomorrow? <laughs> I had put the wrong day on the invitation. Yeah. Um, it was 28 years ago. It was the last time that I yelled at work. Leadership is learned, and sometimes it only takes one lesson. But not Agrippa. Anger is a dangerous emotion, and especially for those responsible for others. Third, Agrippa was an ego-driven leader. This one is the most obvious from the passage and also from the, the readings in Josephus. Luke tells us in the first couple early chapters of this, early verses of this chapter, that Agrippa had the apostle James killed with a sword, and when he saw how much this pleased the Jewish people, he arrested Peter. He wasn't acting out of principle. He wasn't acting out of purpose. He was acting to please people and receive praise. When he saw how much it pleased the people, it's the voice of God and not a man. His flatterers cried out that he was a God. Agrippa, Agrippa is the perfect picture of a leader brought down by pride. And unfortunately, we don't have to look far to see examples in our own day. Business leaders, government leaders, even leaders of ministry who've been destroyed by pride. In the process, in the process, they've damaged the organizations they were trusted to lead. We could find also countless broken families where pride was the largest contributing factor to the damage and the harm that occurred. This is important. Andrew Murray, in his book, Humility, elevates this from a leadership principle to a pathway to holiness. He says, the humble man feels no jealousy or envy. He can praise God when others are preferred and blessed before him. He can bear to hear others praised and himself forgotten, because in God's presence, he has learned to say with Paul, I be nothing. He has received the spirit of Jesus, who did not please himself and did not seek his own honor as the spirit of his life. 
And Peter, who had been imprisoned by Agrippa, writes, in the same way, you who are younger must accept the authority of the elders, and all of you dress yourself in humility as you relate to one another. Not in silver suits, not in mirror costumes. Dress yourself in humility. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So humble yourself under the mighty power of God, and at the right time, he will lift you up in honor. Now clearly, Agrippa failed in all of these areas, and maybe most significantly, he failed to give God glory and praise. And instead, he took it on himself. Now, it's pretty easy for me to stand up here and just kind of dunk on Agrippa. We can use this passage to beat up on him as an evil king. It's tempting to feel proud of ourselves for not living the life of a murderous monarch, which I entrust none of you are. But that's not really the best response that this passage calls for. It's much better to ask how often we hide who we really are, even with our closest family and those in our small group, because we want to look better. How often do we let our anger and our emotions spill out and wound those around us? Most of all, how many chances do we miss to give God the praise and the glory that are only due him? Finally, I want to look at the last two verses in this chapter because they represent a, an important milestone in our journey through Acts. Here's, chap, here's verse 24. Meanwhile, the word of God continued to spread and there were many new believers. When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission to Jerusalem, they returned, taking John Mark with them. Verse 24 reminds us that Luke's purpose in writing this is to show how God protected and advanced the gospel throughout Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The end of chapter 12 marks a transition in Acts. It's the, it's the end of the focus on the ministry in Jerusalem and Judea and the beginning of a ministry to the Gentiles in the surrounding regions that's going to be led by Paul on his missionary journeys. As we finish the message this morning, the band's gonna come back and we're going to sing a song called Behold Him. And I love that we're ending here, and I want to encourage you to use this as an opportunity to be loud in our praise and our glorification of God alone. He alone is worthy of our praise. Let's pray. God, we praise you for every good and perfect gift. In whatever work you give us to do, guide us to do it with our whole heart tuned to you. May our leadership lead others to you. May our leadership bring glory to your name. And may we direct every praise to you so that we will someday share in your glory for eternity. Amen. Amen.